Well, it's been a long time, but uh, back to the Bible survey. And uh, we're actually, for those of you who remember, are up to Colossians. Um, and this is uh, another of the four letters we saw that uh, Paul wrote whilst he was under house arrest in Rome. And uh, we read that at the end of Acts. So this is still the end of the Acts of the Apostles, Paul under house arrest, and he writes to the Colossians, and we've already seen that he wrote to the Ephesians, and to the Philippians, and uh, the other place he wrote to was uh, he wrote to Philemon, and of course we'll, we'll get to him later on in, uh, in the course. <clears throat> so we're looking here around AD 60, and uh, just, just to give you some of the background um, on, on the Colossian church, Colossae was in Asia Minor, which of course is uh, modern-day Turkey, and it was a hundred miles or so east of Ephesus, so very much in that kind of region. Um, it, it, it had a more glorious past than its present was at Paul's time. Um, it used to be a major place of trade, um, but by the time of the New Testament, its, its position had diminished and it was really just, just a small town and uh, kind of like the trading centre had been taken over by Laodicea, which was only 11 miles away. So it had been a big place and then it was a small place. And it's, it's here when Paul's writing, he's writing to this, you know, fairly small town in Turkey. Now, you'll remember that Paul had stayed in Ephesus for three years on his third missionary journey. Obviously, we saw that when we did Acts. And uh, Acts 19 covers that. So he was three years, all right? And you remember that Epaphras was from Colossae, and Epaphras came to know the Lord. And he took the gospel back to Colossae. And obviously, you know, the Lord used him. He was obviously an evangelist, and people got converted, and uh, he got this church going. And now, for five years later, Paul's writing to that same church um, primarily to correct certain heresies and false teachings that were getting into the church. Um, you know, and of course one of the things uh, about uh, you know, a lot of the epistles that, that we have in the Bible is that they were written to combat false teaching. I mean, it's a classic Romans 8.28, everything works together for good. It certainly wasn't good that false teaching was getting into churches. But because it was, we have the letters written to combat the false teaching. And, uh, you know, so that, that works out very much to our advantage. And, uh, you know, and of course, one of the things that we've certainly noted here many, many times during, uh, you know, through, through the years, is that the simple fact of the matter is that there is one thing that the New Testament warns against more than any other thing, and that is false teaching. There are many, many things that the New Testament warns us about, but the single thing that we're warned about more than anything else in the New Testament is false teaching. And the Colossians were coming under some bad influences. Wrong teaching was getting in uh, from both Jewish and Gentile sources. And just kind of, you know, I'll just run through a quick list and you'll see as we go through it how, you know, why Paul is writing. So obviously a lot of the letters they really, you know, make make much more sense when you realise what what the writer is trying to combat. 
And uh, we're certainly going to see that the Colossians were getting very legalistic. Legalism was coming in. Now, by legalism, I mean non-biblical rules and regulations. So there, there, there are two equal opposite errors. There's legalism and there is license or licentiousness. Now, legalism is when you're requiring more of people than the Bible does. That's legalism. Licentiousness is when you're not requiring enough of people. So legalists are saying, hey, if you're going to follow the Lord, you've got to be doing this, this and this, even though the this, this and this is not outlined in Scripture. That's legalism. But licentiousness is when people are saying, well, okay, we know the Lord, and but we don't have to do that, that and that. So the Bible may say that you mustn't be immoral, but we're, you know, we're free to be immoral. Can you see? So legalism demands too much of people. Licentiousness doesn't um, desire, uh, require enough. But here, the problem at Colossae was legalism. Uh, another problem they had was asceticism. Now, asceticism is the idea, this is what the monks used to do, you know, whipping themselves and hair shirts and all this. It's, it's the belief that if you're harsh to your body, if you make your life deliberately unpleasant, uh, you know, sort of like if you, if you, you know, kind of use pain and deny yourself, uh, you know, sort of pleasures that the Bible has no problem with. It's the belief that by giving yourself a real hard time, that that somehow will make you holy. All right, that's that's kind of asceticism. So real harshness on the body, you know, a bit like jogging or something like going to the gym, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> they were they were into angel worship. I don't know what the equivalent of that would be today. Benny Hinn crusades, you know. But I mean, it makes you makes you realise that there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, all the weirdness we see, all the weirdness, all the deception today of the last days amongst believers. It was, it was all there, you know, I mean, here were Christians being drawn into the idea of worshipping angels. Um, there was a denial of the divinity of Jesus going on. That was being questioned. Was, was Jesus God or not? And, and the fundamental problem, this, this can all be summed up, that basically what the Colossians were being subjected to was, was what is technically called Gnosticism. Um, and basically, Gnosticism was a belief, it, it was common amongst the Jews and the Gentiles, different cultures had different versions of it. But it was the idea of being initiated into God's ways through secret knowledge. That there was knowledge that you could have by revelation. But it wasn't, this wasn't something that you could explain to someone. It wasn't a rational knowledge. It, these were revelations and, and inner mysteries just revealed by the cosmic whatever it is up there kind of thing. And, uh, you know, sort of very, you know, I mean, very akin in some ways to the New Age movement. But unlike the New Age movement today, which is very much do what you like, uh, a lot of the Gnosticism here was quite the opposite. It was quite harsh and, you know, and legalistic and stuff like that. But the point is, you know, the, the, all these weird beliefs are coming in and remember in the early church as well you know that sort of like you know everyone with a bit of a religion stuff like that you know satan was always trying to to you know to merge christianity with other faiths to dilute it down 
So all these weird, crazy ideas are coming in. And basically, Paul is writing to, to show them how daft it all is and to bring them back to the truth, the fundamental truth of their Christian life, which, as we're going to see, and this is the heart of the letter, the fundamental truth of the Christian life is, look, you know Jesus. So you don't need all this nonsense flying around at the periphery. You have him. All right. So that's that's Paul's burden. So let's let's see how it kind of unfolds. So, okay, chap, chapter one, and the first two verses. This is just Paul's greetings. Uh, Timothy is with him. So greetings from both Paul and Timothy. And Paul says to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ. So obviously he is writing to brothers and sisters in the Lord, and he's very aware of that. And, and he greets them by saying grace and peace. And I can't remember if I've pointed this out before uh, in this series, but the fact of the matter is that if you read every letter that Paul writes that we have in the New Testament, every one of them begins with a salutation of grace and ends with a salutation of grace. Every one of his letters, he begins it with grace and he ends it with grace. And of course, the whole point is, through and through, the middle is grace. It's grace, grace, grace. This is a grace sandwich, but the bread is made of grace. Because everything is by the grace of God. You know, God's, you know, he has set, he has decided to look upon us with favour. He's decided to give us what we don't deserve, not what we do deserve. He's decided to give us what we don't deserve because he set his love on us. And that's what grace is. And obviously every word of scripture is grace. And then in verses 3 to 8, Paul tells them how grateful he is for them. He's not been there. He doesn't know them. But that he's grateful and how he is always thanking God for them in his prayers. And, uh, you know, that he, he gives thanks for their faith and, and the love that they have for, for all, all the saints. And uh, what's, what's happened is that Epaphras, who had originally gone from Paul back home to Colossae and preached the gospel and seen all these people saved, Epaphras has recently been with Paul in prison and, and told him, you know, about how well they're doing. And Paul is encouraged by that. And so he's, you know, he's really making sure that they know that. And he tells them that the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. I mean, obviously by that he means the then known world, okay. Um, but he says the gospel's bearing fruit all over the world as it is amongst them. So this is, this is encouraging. You know, he's encouraging them. He's telling them, uh, you know, how, how pleased he is with them and uh, how encouraged he is to hear what the Lord's doing amongst them. And then in verses 9 to 14, he tells them what his ongoing prayer for them is. And this was kind of like Paul's burden for all the churches, but obviously here he's writing to um, a particular one. And he says that, 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 that his prayer for them is that God will fill them with knowledge of his will and his spiritual wisdom and that they'll grow in understanding. Now remember, one of the things he's combating in this letter is this Gnosticism, this secret knowledge. And all the time, Paul brings them back. No true knowledge is knowing Jesus. And it's something that you can understand rationally. There's nothing irrational about it, you know, and anything like that. And he says that he prays that they might lead 
a life worthy of the Lord and live a life that pre you know that pleases him and obviously you know the fact that we're saved by grace doesn't change the fact that it's right and proper we're God's children children naturally want to please their parents when par when when children stop wanting to please their parents it's because bad parenting is happening but God's a good parent he's a perfect father to us so obviously it's only right and proper that we should live a life which which pleases him and he says that this is his prayer for them so that they'll that God will fill them with the knowledge of his will fill them with spiritual wisdom and understanding and so, so that they will lead a life worthy of him and which pleases him and he prays that they might bear fruit in every good work so this this isn't just something this isn't some highfalutin spiritual thing this isn't a prayer oh I pray that you'll understand the deep things of God and somehow it's left there and uh, you know I think that uh, you know I heard it said once that you know a lot of Christians their faith is so deep that no one ever gets to see it you know, and, and 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 Paul says no I'm praying that you'll lead a good life good works and 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 if a knowledge of the Lord if the rubber doesn't hit the road in a holy life what's what's the point it's just head knowledge and that's the knowledge that in Corinthians Paul says no that puffs up that puffs up but a true knowledge of him will always cause his love to be shed abroad in our heart and that's going to show that's going to show in a life of good works and he says this is what I'm praying for you and he says then again that you may grow in the knowledge of God so <coughs> yeah I've got to grow in knowledge but it's no use if it stops at knowledge if that if that understanding doesn't issue in living the Christian life then 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 there's there's no point and he goes on and he says that he prays that they'll be strengthened with the power of his glorious might because I mean obviously this this living the Christian life it's not all oh, right okay now I know Jesus gonna clean my act up we, we can't clean our act up but my goodness if we have the power of his glorious might if, if God has changed us the dynamic is not us the dynamic is what he does through us but you know but he says that I pray that you'll be strengthened with with that power and he said that they might know endurance and patience and uh, endurance and patience I mean that in you know in Romans Paul outlined how that produces character and when he talks about fruit I mean fruit is character love joy peace etc etc the fruit of the Holy Spirit because they were going through a tough time and, and, and as we, we've said so many times before it's the tough times that God uses that, that you know that causes us to grow um, you know, part, plant, plants grow better after the compost has just landed on them, and it's, it's often the same with us. The, the compost comes down, doesn't it? And uh, but that's the growing environment because when it's tough, that makes us truly rely on the Lord in a way that if things often weren't tough, then we default back to just trusting in ourselves and doing things in our own strength and so Paul saying look this is what I'm praying I'm praying that this will be God's strength through you and uh, you know that you'll you'll know endurance and and and, and, and patience and um, and he, he prays that they'll all the time be thankful that God has 
given them the, the grace to, to inherit the kingdom of light and of his son and reminds them that they've been rescued from the dominion of darkness through redemption which is the forgiveness of sins and redemption we saw this in the salvation series that we were there in the slave market of sin could do nothing about it and Jesus comes along and he pays the price and he says you know do you you know do you want to stop being a slave to sin now then that 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 doesn't mean that somehow now we're free because now we become a slave to righteousness we become a slave to Jesus but that's what redemption is and Paul prays that they'll rejoice and that they'll joy in in knowing that and understanding that now he then dives dives in to you know talk about the truth about Jesus because Satan will always attack the truth about Jesus and anything that you know that causes believers to be deceived in any way about him always debilitates the Christian life and 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 they're getting you know confused about the truth about Jesus because of all this Gnosticism that you know that has come in and so Paul straight in he says look Jesus is the image of the invisible God and of course the truth is that Jesus is God become man you can't see God because God is spirit oh but actually you can because Jesus isn't but Jesus is God so 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 this this is the paradox you know no one has seen God the Father but when we see Jesus everything that God is Jesus is because Jesus is God become a human being and Paul says that he's the firstborn over all creation now interestingly enough this is one of the verses where heretics try and get in and say no look Jesus isn't divine the Bible says look he's the firstborn okay um, over all creation almost as if when God created he created Jesus first they say look this proves that Jesus isn't God now of course the point there is that that, 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 that Paul's not talking about there Jesus being the firstborn in the context of coming into existence what he's talking about there is the rights of the firstborn he's talking about Jesus's authority um, you know the sort of like the, 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 the eldest son had the full authority of the father that's why Jesus came he said I do only what I see my father doing so what Paul this isn't uh, a statement that Jesus was was created at any point this is a statement that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and he is the authority over creation and then he goes on to say and obviously this demonstrates it further that all things in heaven and earth heaven obviously the angels earth the material creation that all things in heaven and earth were created by him and for him so of course he's God Jesus is uncreated everything that there is was created by him but not only by him for him he he's not just the cause of the universe he is the reason for the universe as well and when John opens his gospel with this thing in the beginning was the word and the word was God and etc etc the word there the Greek is logos and behind that is a philosophical concept and it's the idea of the reason and the mind of God 
I mean, Jesus is the reason for everything. He's not just the, the cause of everything. He's the reason for everything. And so therefore, clearly, Paul is saying here that, 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 that Jesus is uncreated. So the thing about the firstborn is nothing to do with saying that he was the first being who was created. It's a statement of Jesus' authority, as it were, as the firstborn son. Okay. And he says that he's the head of his body, the church. So again, headship. Again, this is authority. So we've, you know, sort of seen, um, you know, that, that, that he's the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn son, that's authority. He's the head of his body, the church, that's authority. The head is where everything, everything my body does, it's submitting, it's being controlled by my head. My head has authority in that sense over the body. That's the same with Jesus. He is Lord of the universe, and obviously he is Lord of the church. And then Paul says that he's the beginning and firstborn from among the dead. Now that's interesting. He's the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. Now what Paul's thinking of here is first fruits. Because of course the point is that when Jesus died, he I mean he was he was the Lord God of glory and he became a human being. Now the thing that we can't get our heads round but is simply a fact that we accept because scripture clearly teaches it is that when God became a man he became a real ordinary man and yet without in any way ceasing to be God now we can't get our heads around that at all but the point is God in Jesus became a man so Jesus was God become man and he was an ordinary man you know sort of like you know if you you punched him he bruised if he, if he banged his knee on something, it hurt, all right? But when he died and rose again from the dead, he rose again from the dead as a glorified man. So the thing is that we have Jesus in his pre-existence, God, but not man, obviously. In the incarnation, he becomes man. So he lays aside his glory and he becomes an ordinary man. But then when he dies, he's raised again from the dead, and now he goes back to heaven. He gets all his glory back, but as a man. So now, Jesus is a glorified man. And the gospel is that there's a man glorified in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And he's there as the firstborn of many sons. Which simply means this. Jesus, when he ascended and was glorified, became the first of countless human beings who are going to experience exactly the same thing. But of course the point is, Jesus was just entering back into the glory that was his by right. It was inherently his. For us, we will enter his glory as a gift. It's not our glory, it's his glory, but we will share it. So that one day, when the Lord comes, we will get glorified bodies, just like Jesus is. So he's saying that he is the firstborn from among the dead. Okay, so he's the first. It's his by right. We will all follow, experience the same thing as a gift that he's given to us. And Paul says that, 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 that he is absolutely supreme. There's a glorified man in heaven who is the Lord 
of the universe because he is God himself. And then Paul just, so that there's no messing around with this at all, he says that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was God become a man. And in this he was reconciling everything to himself through the blood that he shed on the cross. Now, the reconciling, what was what needed to be reconciled? God, a man, man had sinned and rebelled. Now, God didn't need to reconcile to anyone, of course he didn't. It was man who needed to reconcile to God. So, the two sides in this dispute, God is innocent, the innocent party, we're the guilty party, alright? So, there's God and there's man. So, God becomes a man. And that's reconciling the two. You see the point? The dispute was between God and humanity. So God takes on humanity and through his death on the cross he reconciles. And because we're believers we are in him but we're in him he is divine. So we're reconciled. We are one with God as surely as if we had never sinned. Because that's that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And in verses 21 to 23, he reminds them that they were, before they were saved, they were alienated from God and that they were enemies in their minds because of their evil behaviour. And before we were born again, we were enemies of God in our minds. Because everything comes from our minds in that sense, doesn't it? I mean, what was our thinking? Was our thinking, what does the Lord want me to do today? <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was what do I want, and that was our thinking. We were alienated. But he says, but God reconciled them, the Colossians, through Christ's physical body. Again, the whole point is, it's because God literally became a man. So the thing is, remember that, you know, that also the Colossians, I mean, there were crazy, crazy teachings around at the time of the early church. Well, there still are. But there were teachings that Jesus was an angel. Um, or there were teachings that, that Jesus was God, but he only appeared to be a man. It was kind of a con. He looked physical, but he wasn't really. And uh, there were other teachings that Jesus was an ordinary man, but when he was baptised, the Christ came on him and he became design, uh, divine and then just before he died on the cross the Christ left him and went back to heaven. Got all these crazy all attacking the simple fact that Jesus is God become man and this is what Paul is emphasizing here all the time. Jesus was not an angel, Jesus was not God appearing to be a man but not really. Jesus was God become a human being all right and then he reminds them that it's because of that and only because of that that through his death he has made them the colossians holy without blemish and free from accusation i.e they're justified they've been justified by faith remember justification justified never sinned set free from the penalty of sin because god has declared us not guilty and so Paul says, this is the gospel that you've heard. This is the gospel that you've responded to and which is being preached everywhere and 
Paul says, and I am a servant of this same gospel. And then in verses 24 to 29, Paul, Paul says one of those things, we, we kind of read it and we accept it and that, but the full import of it doesn't really, doesn't really come home. And he says that he rejoices in his sufferings for them in his ministry. And that he's making up what is lacking in Jesus' sufferings. And that he's doing this for the sake of the church. So what Paul's saying is that he rejoices in his sufferings and because he's completing what is lacking of Jesus' sufferings. And he's doing this for the benefit of the church. Now, firstly, let's remind ourselves, Paul rejoicing in his sufferings. He was in jail. And, and Paul many times had been beaten and whipped and half killed and he had an absolutely dreadful time. Okay, So when he talks about his rejoicing in his sufferings, it is actually suffering that he's going through. I mean, you know, the Lord puts us all through the suffering that he wants us to go through, but it is just sobering to remind ourselves that the guy who wrote this was actually in, in you know, kind of in prison, okay. Um, but all this stuff about lacking, you know, sort of Jesus' affliction is lacking and Paul's completing it. You see, obviously, Jesus is suffering on the cross to win our salvation that's done i mean there's no that's it he's in that's completed on the cross jesus said it is finished paid in full over and done with simple as that okay but remember jesus's suffering as the suffering servant was that he was despised and rejected by men now when jesus died on the cross he didn't stop being despised and rejected by men this world still hates him still despises him still rejects him and you remember when Paul uh, came to the Lord, okay, Paul had been dragging all these Christians off to, you know, to prison and stuff like that. And when Jesus revealed himself to him, he says, Paul, why do you persecute me? You see? Now, Paul, Paul was persecuting Christians. But if you persecute Christians, you're persecuting Jesus because it's Jesus in them that the persecutor hates. So what Paul is saying, obviously to that extent, Jesus is still suffering because the world still rejects him. But whereas when he was on the earth physically, now he's physically in heaven, but when he was on the earth physically, people rejected him as the person physically. But now he's back in heaven, the Holy Spirit's poured out. Now people reject Jesus by rejecting his people. So the point is that Jesus continues to be rejected. But how is Jesus rejected? He lives in us. Jesus is rejected by us being rejected for following him. And so what Paul is saying, that yeah, we, we, are, we are sharing the sufferings of Jesus. Because what he experienced, if that's what the master experienced, then we can be sure that the servant will uh, experience it as well. But all Paul's sufferings, everything he's going through, Romans 8.28, God is using to bless the church more and more. And so the point is that even when believers <coughs> go through suffering, and it's funny, if you look at anywhere in the world, at any point in history, where Christians have actually been persecuted unto death, you will find that the worse the persecution, the faster the church grows. And so that is always a principle built in there. 
the greater the suffering, the greater the blessing for the church involved in that suffering. And Paul reminds them that his commission, his calling, is to present God's word in absolute fullness. And he goes on to say, and what, what it is that I'm preaching in its fullness, he says, up till now, it's been a mystery. It's been a mystery. But now it's revealed. Now remember, Paul is combating Gnosticism. What is Gnosticism? It's the revelation of mysteries. It's secret knowledge that you can't quite explain. So what Paul's doing here, he's using their language. All right. And he's saying, but this mystery has been revealed. He says it's plain to see. It's there for anyone. You can tell anyone what this mystery is. The Gnostics couldn't. If you were talking to a, you know, a Gnostic and you'd say, tell me the mystery of God. Oh, tell me, how do, I, how do I come to be one with the divine being? And you know, they couldn't tell you. But what they do is they take you along to their secret initiations and you'd have these experiences, things like that. See? At no point could you actually communicate to someone what you've... See? It's always... Any, anything, non-rationality is always a sign that Satan is working. Non-rationality, irrationality... Why? Jesus is the Logos. He's the reason of God. Logos. Logic. Now, I'm not about to say that God is tied down with our perceptions of logic, but what I am saying is that truth, by definition, is always logical. God is ordered. We have an ordered universe. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't walk through the, wind, you know, the, the wall. You've got to go out through the door. That's simply the way things are, you see. So the point is, these Gnostics, they, they were non-rational in their experience. And what Paul's saying, I'll tell you what the mystery of God is. He says, it's Jesus, he lives in you. And of course, you can tell that to anyone. And he says, this mystery has been revealed. It's nothing to do with secret knowledge. He said, we're shouting it from the rooftops. So he's getting the Colossians to see how ridiculous it is to talk about hidden mysteries of God when we got the scripture, when it's all been laid out for us, a child can understand it. And he says, yeah, this is the mystery, it's Jesus living in you. And of course the whole point is, it's not a mystery, it's as plain as the nose on your face. And Paul says that he and his associates, he says, therefore they teach him, they preach him, it's Jesus they're preaching. It's not esoteric knowledge, it's not weird doctrines, it's nothing weird at all. It's simply preaching the truth about Jesus. And he says that we teach and we admonish in all wisdom, he says, so that people are made perfect. Now the Greek word there, it doesn't necessarily mean perfect as in sinless perfection, but it means mature, whole, complete. And interestingly enough, that was the technical word that the Gnostics use as well. So that once you came into their knowledge, I mean, you couldn't explain it to anyone, but you were said to be mature. You were said to be complete. And so what Paul's doing is he's, <coughs> he's putting the true gospel alongside the Gnosticism and showing the Colossians how ridiculous it is that they should be taking that in any way seriously at all. And Paul goes on to say that he struggles and he labours to that end, i.e. to teach and preach Christ. 
and and he does so with the power and energy of God working in him and there's the balance now then what's the dynamic of the Christian life is it what you and I do no of course it's not it's what Jesus does in and through us so does that mean we do nothing no of course it doesn't it means we struggle and labor to that end that Jesus lived through us this is what the writer to the Hebrews talks about striving to enter into that rest so what Paul is saying this is yeah everything it's it's Jesus through us but nevertheless it still takes a hundred percent me to be available to be the open vessel through which Jesus can live okay right chapter 2 and uh, verses 1 to 5 and uh, he, he, he wants them to know that, um, that, that he is struggling for both them and the Laodiceans. There was a connection between Colossae and Laodicea because Laodicea was only um, 11 miles away. And uh, especially as uh, they'd never met him. And he was saying, I want you to know about my struggles for you. He, he wanted them to know that he cared and, and that they were in his, uh, you know, in his mind and, and in his, his heart. And he said that, that he wanted them all to be encouraged and united in love. And uh, to have understanding in knowing the mystery of God, which is Christ. Here he's bashing the Gnosticism again now. Okay. Uh, and he says, in whom all wisdom and knowledge is found. So, so here you've got the Gnostics again coming along, secret wisdom, secret knowledge, can't quite explain it to anyone because it's revealed at a non-rational level, all that sort of nonsense. And what's Paul saying? Again, he says, I'm telling you, the mystery is Jesus, and all God's wisdom and knowledge is revealed in Jesus. And of course the point is, we can rationally apprehend what Jesus taught because everything Jesus taught is completely rational and logical. It's as simple as that. So there again he's saying, look, you know, get away from all this nonsense, all this secret knowledge stuff. He says, because the truth of God is there as plain as the nose on your face. And it's Jesus. He is the truth. Remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. I mean, it's, it's nothing secret about it, anything, nothing esoteric about it. It's there, the simple proclamation of the gospel. That is the mystery of God revealed. And he says that he doesn't want them to be deceived by what he calls fine-sounding arguments. Now, one of the things that you've got to understand about false teaching is that people always make it sound pretty good, all right? Fine-sounding arguments. But nevertheless, you've got to crack through fine-sounding arguments and you've got to see what the argument is saying and if it doesn't square up with scripture, then it doesn't matter how fine-sounding it is, it's a ton of nonsense. It's as simple as that. And uh, in, six, in verse 6 to 23, he tells them that they're, continue, they're to continue to live in Jesus, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in their faith and overflowing with thankfulness all the time he's bringing them back to Jesus look at keeping your eyes on the Lord keeping your eyes on Jesus and he says they must become aware of the danger of becoming enslaved by what he calls hollow and deceptive philosophy and he says this hollow and deceptive philosophy he says it's based on human traditions and the principles of the world rather than simply trusting in Jesus and he says 
you've got to beware that you can get enslaved in that as believers. I've certainly seen believers get enslaved in all kinds of philosophical and theological stuff that took them away from the Lord and away from the teaching of Scripture. That danger is always there. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, we saw that the false teaching they got into was, was simply going back into Judaism, going back under the law, pretty basic. But Paul says, who has bewitched you? And, and of course, when he writes to Timothy, he talks about these things being the doctrines of demons. And the thing about false teaching, it does have power because it is fundamentally demonic. And, and Paul warns them, you will become enslaved by this if you are not really careful. And what is the prime thing that they're to do by way of being careful? It's all the time looking to Jesus and remaining in the truth as it had been declared to them by Paul. And remember, the truth of the gospel that Paul had proclaimed to them was in in, in, in words and propositions, statements that everyone could understand and everyone could verify. It was simply plain as the words on the page that he had written and sent to them. And, uh, you know, so he's saying that to keep trusting in Jesus. And then he's, he reminds them that he is God become man and had over all things. He comes back to that. He's the head of everything and that we share in his fullness. And he says, look, our sinful natures have therefore been circumcised. That's a strange thing to say about his sinful nature. What does he mean by that? Well, what does circumcision do? Cuts the flesh away. Cuts it away. And, and, and in effect, that's what's happened with our sinful nature. He said, we've been buried with Jesus in baptism and raised to new life through the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And what Paul's saying, look, the truth of the matter is that, you know, we actually shared Jesus' death to sin. Jesus died once to sin and, and, and now he was raised to God. And he was saying that we share his life and we also share his death to sin. And to the extent that we look to him, to the extent that we reckon that, we can actually experience the sinful nature being cut away. Not that it goes anywhere, but to the extent that we look to him, then he overrides our sinful nature. But the moment we take our eyes off of him, then our sinful nature is, is there. You know, in Romans, Paul um, uses the Greek word for neutralize. And, you know, he talks about, you know, the body of sin being destroyed. And it's, new, you know, it's neutralised. And it's like, if you've got acid, if you put alkaline in, the acid is neutralised. Now, to the extent that we look to Jesus, our sinful nature is neutralised by his life within us. But if you take the acid, if you take the alkaline out, what have you got? Pure acid. The moment we're not looking to Jesus, it's our sinful nature that we live in. All right, so, so that's the... That's the struggle, the in and out of the sinful nature, as it were, to the extent that we're actually looking to Jesus and trusting him. And he reminds them that God made us alive with Jesus while we were still dead in our sins. That at the end of the day, this was something, you know, I mean, you're minding your own business, and then for some reason you become a Christian. Well, I mean, that was, that was God bringing you into this, this new life. 
and he said having nailed the written code against us to the cross that's what he says so he says the written code that was against you he nailed it to the cross now when the romans crucified somebody they they nail um you know they have a piece of wood and they write on it the crime that you were being killed for and they'd nail that up to the cross now what's interesting is do you remember that Pilate he couldn't think of anything to nail to the cross could he because Jesus hadn't done anything wrong so he just nailed up king of the Jews and uh, the Jews objected to that and Pilate said no what I've written remains written because of course the point is Jesus wasn't dying for his own sin he was sinless but that king of the Jews that was our sin being nailed there and the point is that once you were crucified, when you died, you'd paid the price for the crime that got you on the cross. So the moment Jesus died, our crimes, our sin, it was, it was dealt with. It's gone. That's why we're justified. That's why God has declared us not guilty, because it's gone through the death of Jesus on the cross. And so he says, look, you know, that's been nailed, um, you know, sort of to the cross. Um, it's as simple as that he said at the same time he disarmed the powers and authorities which obviously there is a reference to Satan and the demons and it said he says making a spectacle of them as he triumphed over them by the cross so you've got two sides of the coin here Jesus dies as Jesus dies on the cross our sins are paid for so we're free now that's that's the first thing but the other aspect is Satan's ownership on us was based on our sinfulness. We belonged to him. We were his children. We were like him. Well, now, because we're declared not guilty, we don't belong to him anymore. We belong to God now. Translated out of the kingdom of, of darkness into his wonderful light, as Paul says elsewhere. Now, also, if you, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of like look at, say, say the, the whole of Old Testament history, okay, basically, uh, you know, sort of boils down to Satan trying to prevent the Son of God being born. Satan knew from the garden in Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, that a man was going to come and was going to undo what Satan had accomplished in Adam and Eve. And so immediately Satan starts work to prevent it from happening. Now, at the beginning, all he knew was that this one, this seed of the woman, a man. It's going to be a man. A man's going to come and undo what Satan had done, okay? So, the Noah thing, do you remember the sons of God, you know, having sex with the girls? And this hybrid, these were demons, these were angels taking on human form. And so you get this hybrid, and the flood ended that and God started again and repopulated the earth because what you've got there I mean it's literally genetic engineering the only thing Satan knew was that this coming Messiah was going to be a man so immediately he tries to genetically alter the human race so it's not truly human anymore if that had happened he knew that this man was going to be the seed of the woman if he could have done that <coughs> no more human race no salvation but of course it didn't work, God destroyed the world in the flood, started again, repopulated, okay. So then the next thing that Satan knows, because Satan don't know everything, and he certainly doesn't know the future. I mean, he does a bit, because he can read his Bible the same as we can, but so Satan don't know everything, he don't know very much at all actually. 
you, you can prove that or he wouldn't have done what he did here all right so the next thing he finds out is that this man who's going to come is going to be a Jew God creates Israel so the whole of Old Testament history is what God trying to destroy uh, Satan trying to destroy Israel did he did he succeed no he didn't so Jesus is born all right Israel brings the Messiah so Satan I mean, you know, this this is love thirsty. I mean, Satan, he's not he's not getting he he's not winning rounds on points even. So then, Messiah's born, right? Okay, immediately kill him. Jesus is a baby, and the Herod killing all the babies. Did it work? No. I mean, if Satan knows so much, how come he didn't know Jesus weren't there? He doesn't know very much, you see. Um, you know, Christians think that the devil's the opposite of God. He's not. I mean, if God's an elephant, Satan's a little flea. I'm probably being generous to him. I mean, God is God. I mean, Satan is just a created being. That's all he is, okay? So he immediately tries to kill Jesus as soon as he's born, blows that, okay? Then picks up with him later on, okay, when Jesus comes into public ministry, all right? So that, and again and again and again, through Jesus' public ministry, Satan tries to kill him, doesn't he? Do you remember Jesus went to Nazareth? This is where he brought up. Well, they dragged him to the top of a cliff. They wanted to throw him off. And it says Jesus passed through them because his time had not yet come. So Satan keeps trying to kill Jesus. Can he? No. Because who was in control of when Jesus died? Jesus, not Satan. So, you know, Satan tries to kill him, tries to kill him, tries to kill him thwarted at every point then eventually gets to the point where he pulls off his greatest accomplishment and he does actually get Jesus on the cross you know he, he uses the Romans and the Jews and the mob and Judas and all this sort of stuff and 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 what Satan's been trying to do for 6,000 years he manages to do and Jesus dies on the cross and the moment that Jesus died, Satan realized that he had just banged the last nail in his own coffin. Because it was when Jesus died, in his time, that Satan was totally defeated once and for all, irrevocably. And so this is why Paul says, you know, that sort of he disarmed the powers and authorities. Yeah, you can see like Satan and all the demons there with little pop guns. And Jesus comes around to give me the pop gun. Yeah. That's it. Satan, defenseless. And it says that he made a spectacle of them. Now, what is it? When we say, oh, crumbs, didn't they make a spectacle of themselves? What are we saying? Saying what what idiot, what twit they made of themselves. On the cross, Jesus' death revealed Satan for the stupidity that rules him and controls him. Jesus is the truth. I mean, Satan couldn't even get this right. Not because Satan's thick in himself, he's probably cleverer than us, but he's up against the intellect of Almighty God. Can you see the point? And so what he says, yeah, here, Jesus made an absolute twit of the devil. And, and, and I mean, where is Satan? He's 
under our feet. You know, and yet Christians, they, yeah, we've got to be careful. We've got to understand his wiles. He's like a roaring lion, but he's on a leash. And he is under our feet. He is a defeated foe. It's as simple as that. And, uh, and so Paul therefore says, so what need do you have in the light of all this? He says, what need do you have for all these false teachings? And, and he, he lists things like rules about food and drink, special observances, days, festivals. So it's all the sort of the stuff tied in with the false teaching that the Gnostics were bringing in. And Paul's saying, look, in the light of this, this is the Jesus, this is he who lives in us. He says, what are you messing around with festivals that have nothing to do with the Bible? What are you messing around with rules about food and drink that don't come from Scripture? He says, what, what on earth are you doing? He says, all these things are just shades. <coughs> he said, Jesus is the reality. You know, I mean, all those things, they're the shadow. And then the sun comes out. What, you know, what, what happens to the shadow when the sun shines on it? The shadow is just not there anymore. And so, you know, Paul, Paul says, you know, and you've got people with, with, their, with their angel worship, he says, don't let them disqualify you. You see, they, they, they've had people come in who are super spiritual. Do you know what I mean? They can come in and they've had more experiences of the divine before breakfast than Paul had in his whole life. You know, the sort of people I mean. And they were being overawed by them. They were giving in to them. Only these people, they were worshipping angels and doing this, that and the other. And Paul says, look, he says, don't, don't be disqualified by them. He says, the truth about them is not that they're super spiritual. It's not that they're humble. He says, the truth about them is that they're puffed up. They're unspiritual. They are full of idle notions. Now, I know that this isn't the sort of stuff that Christians are supposed to say about people. But the Bible says an awful lot of stuff like this about an awful lot of people. Because when you've got people bringing false teaching in, it is important that they are exposed for what they are. Because exposing them for what they are is part of the protection to stop other people who might otherwise be gullible from taking in what they're saying. And so what, you know, sort of Paul says, look, they have lost connection with Jesus as their head. Now, incredibly, Paul acknowledges that these false teachers are wayward Christians and, and, and obviously most false teaching is generated by Christians that's simply you know sort of like well we've got to understand why would we warn so much about false teaching if no Christian can get deceived by false teaching I mean these come in at the behest of Christians and he says look the truth of these people is he says they've lost connection with Jesus as the head from whom the body is held together by ligaments and sinews growing as God causes it to. Now, what, what Paul's saying there, he's saying, look, in a body, you see, Jesus is the head of the body, the church, all right. So he's saying, look, in a head, a body, everything in my body is governed by the head. And everything does what it's meant to do, controlled by the head. Now, he's saying, 
here you've got parts of the body and they're not connected to the head anymore they're doing their own thing disconnected from the head and therefore out of step with the rest of the body now let me give you a medical definition for when that happens cancer cancer is when cells in the body reproduce having lost their connection with the head can you see what I mean they go rogue and they're no longer growing in tandem with the rest of the body their activities are actually destroying the rest of the body and uh, the writer to the Hebrews uses the word gangrene which is a very similar kind of uh, you know sort of like idea and that's what Paul's saying he says look the, the, these people he says this is a cancer false teaching all this nonsense that they're bringing in this angel worship this all this legalism and, and all this kind of super spiritual stuff and uh, you know and obviously there are loads and loads of different versions and, and and you simply you simply establish whether or not something is consistent with the Word of God that that's the test alright and he says that when you get stuff like this it is like cancer and it will destroy you if you're not careful and so he says look having died to Jesus died with Jesus to the world and its ways and its principles he says look why then do you go back to don't handle don't taste don't touch he says it's all just human commands can you see the point the moment you stray from the authority of the Word of God and go on to other authorities you are then losing your connection with Christ can you see the point so any time that we give in to wrong teachings whatever they are uh, you become enslaved by them and uh, you know it's, it's kind of bad news and Paul says look legalism and asceticism like this because remember a lot of this stuff was you know this kind of be horrible to your body and all this sort of stuff and he says look it, it, it he says it might look spiritual it might look good but he says it has no power to actually curb sensual indulgence now think about it let's say that you think okay I have bodily desires that I wish I didn't have alright because they could be sinful or indeed a lot of these guys perfectly normal desires they thought were sinful the Greeks and a lot of Gnosticism came from the Greeks believed that the human body they believed that matter was evil so they believed the human body was evil full stop so human desires were evil but let's let's just buy into the idea that human desires are evil okay so what you want to do you want to so control your body that you overcome these desires alright okay now then, what Paul's saying, uh, but what happens is that then, even if you manage to curb a desire here and there, what's the effect? It says it, it makes you self-righteous, is it? Which is evil as well. So, so the point is asceticism, all it's doing, it might knock a sin or two on the head there, but it's growing others elsewhere. You see the point? Paul says it's not the answer what is the answer is it changing ourselves of course not the answer is being changed by Jesus because then the glory goes to him so you know like if you you know sort of say say if a, a sin is overcoming your life and you say I've overcome that sin okay right now you've grown another one self-righteousness so what have you gained but when you know that thank you Lord you've delivered me from that sin the glory is going to Jesus can you see what I mean that sin overcome whereas this asceticism it's just moving the deck chairs around on the Titanic 
It's not genuine holiness because it doesn't come from the life of Jesus within. It's purely, you know, kind of like, you know, the works, you know, of the flesh. Religious works, but nevertheless the works of the flesh. Okay. Right, now then, chapter 3, um, verses 1 to 17. He says, right, okay. He says, so given that you're raised with Christ, you know, that, that bang, there we are in heaven with Jesus. He says, live accordingly. He says, live by heaven and not by earth. I be what you are. Now, what, what is the mystery that's been revealed? He says, it's Jesus living in you. We are one with Jesus. We share his life of righteousness. And, and he goes on, he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now that's, that's what I call that double security. Your life is hidden, Jesus has got you in his hand. And Jesus is in the Father's hand. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And remember in John's Gospel, when Jesus was saying, uh, you know, that sort of like, you know, he wouldn't lose any of those that the Father had given him. And he said, none shall pluck them from my hand. And then he says, the Father is greater than all, and none shall pluck them from his hand. See the point? So what Jesus, you know, like, you know, in this, the, the playground, you remember the old, my dad can beat your dad up. My dad's bigger than your dad. That, that sort of thing, okay? Now what Jesus is saying, well, my dad is actually the biggest dad of them all. Now he says, I'm pretty big. You're in my hand. Nothing gets you out, okay? None shall pluck you from my hand. But my father is greater than all. None shall pluck them from his hand. So the point is, we are in Christ and Christ is in God. Now that's a double security. That's how safe that we are. So Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And he says, and when he appears, you're going to be glorified as well. Remember, we're going to end up exactly like Jesus, glorified in every way. And so Paul says, look, this is the truth about you. He says, so therefore, put the old nature to death. He says, don't keep living in the old nature. He says, because you're not like that anymore. You're different now. Jesus has changed you. He's made you like himself. And he said, rid yourself of all those things. And he lists immorality, greed, anger, malice, slander, dirty talk, lying. He says, take off the old nature. He says, take off the self and put on the new nature. The, the picture here is clothes. It's getting undressed. It's getting out of one set of clothes and putting on another. And, uh, you know, sort of uh, on the cross, Jesus wore our clothes, our sinful, dirty clothes. And he says, right, I've worn your clothes. Now you wear mine. And we've got to put on his garments of righteousness. And, uh, you, know, and, it, and you know, and he says this new nature is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of God, its creator. And so what, what you've got Paul saying here, and, and this is always his pattern, he, he, he paints this incredible panorama of the truth of what Jesus has done for us. The truth of what God has done for us in Jesus. These incredible truths, and they're all to do with what Jesus has done. And then he argues, therefore, this is how you should then live. Can you see what I mean? He says, because of everything Jesus has done, this therefore should be how you live as a result. 
and uh, you know, and, and 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 he says, look, as as those whom God has chosen and loves, we must love each other. And he says, clothe yourselves. He's just done the old, put off the old nature, put on the new nature. That was a getting undressed, getting dressed picture. And, and, and now he carries on with that. And he says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. We can be like that. Not because of us, but because that's what Jesus is like. And because Christ in you, the hope of glory. All right. And he says, bear with one another and forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. You see, if Jesus forbears me, how can I not forbear other people? It doesn't mean there's never a time to correct, it doesn't mean there's never a time for maybe tough action, but the point is, as Jesus <coughs> puts up with me, i got to put up with others. And he says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And then he says, put on love which binds all these into perfect unity. And then he says, let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, given that we are called to peace in one body. There's right relationships again. And he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ, that's Jesus' teachings. For us, that scripture, growing in the knowledge of God, and a great part of that, obviously, is, 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 is growing in our knowledge of what scripture teaches. And he says, teach and admonish each other. You don't say, your leaders will teach you, your leaders will admonish you. Now, this is one another. This isn't some, this is for all of us to be doing with each other. And of course, admonish means to reprove and to warn. So there's even that, you know, telling each other off, you know, in the right uh, situation. And he says, so teach and admonish each other with all wisdom. And he says, sing psalms and hymns with gratitude in our hearts. There's worship. And he said, and do all in word and deed in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, you must have noticed the parallel here with Ephesians. How Paul does the same thing, put off the old nature, put on the new nature. And then he goes through and he talks about being filled with the Spirit. You know, he says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Only in the Greek it's be being filled with the Spirit. Now this is exactly the parallel passage here. Only here he's speaking in terms of singing psalms and hymns with gratitude and, you know, but, but it all boils down to our relationships with each other. <clears throat> and then in verse 18 um, through to the first verse of chapter 4, he does exactly the same thing that he does in Ephesians. Because he's really getting down to the rubber hitting the road now. He's already said about right relationships with each other and everything like that. But what does it boil down to in the most hard and fast terms? And it's exactly the same as he says in Ephesians. Having covered being filled with the Spirit, often Christians think, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And they think, oh, it means to speak in tongues and to have lovely experiences of God and stuff like that. And yeah, that is all part of it. That's all part of it. But that's not the whole of it. For Paul, being filled with the Spirit, now let's go through this list. Wives, submit to your husbands. And oh boy, you know, having been raised up with Christ in heavenly places, our feet are now very firmly nailed to the floor, aren't they? Because to be raised up with Christ in heavenly places is to have your feet nailed to the ground. Where, you know, where as it were, the rubber hits the road. Wives, submit to your husband. Now, if you're being changed 
into the likeness of Jesus. That's what he wants for you. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Now, in Ephesians, he says, love them as Christ loves the church. Obviously, it's not what he says here. He says, don't be harsh with them. And that's a, that's a guy thing. Okay, that's something you've got to watch for. But, you know, we want to say, hey, I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm raised up with Christ in heavenly places. This, that, and the other. You know, kind of, is that is that spiritual enough? Well, the answer to that is, um, do you love your wife? That's the answer. Not just speak in tongues. Not, not did you feel the Spirit move in your heart this morning when you prayed. It's, are you loving your wife? Wives, are you submitting to your husband? Children, obey your parents and everything because it pleases the Lord. That's what being filled with the Spirit means for kids. That's what it boils down to. If they're not obeying their parents, they're not obeying the Lord, period. But fathers, don't be harsh with your kids or they'll be discouraged. Because obviously with parenting, it's not just the question of kids being obedient. Yeah, of course they've got to be obedient. But my goodness, what a responsibility for fathers to be the fathers God wants them to be. To be the fathers that their children just so look up to and respect that they're going to want to emulate you. As I said, uh, you know, like at the start, children naturally want to please their parents. If children stop wanting to please their parents, it's only because bad parenting has come in and cross-circuited it. If parents are as they should be, the children will want to obey them. You know, in the same way that, yeah, I mean, wives submit to husbands, but it helps if you're a real loving husband um, as well. You know, you see what I mean? Wives should submit whether husband's loving or not. Husbands should love their wives whether their wives are submissive or not. But can you see, when we're what we are, then that helps others be what they should be. And that's back to that mutual responsibility. Slaves obey your masters out of reverence for the Lord. I suppose that'd be, you know, that's our relationship at work, isn't it? With your boss or whatever. And whatever you do, do it with your whole heart. Because he'll reward you. Masters, be good and fair to slaves. You know, I mean, most, most slave owners weren't, but Christian slave owners. Interesting, slavery was not abolished on the authority of Scripture. Not, not saying I want it back. But the point is, the answer to slavery was slaves and masters in a family relationship. The masters being fair and good to their slaves. That's, that's what the Bible teaches. And then in chapter 4 and verses 2 to 6, um, he says, Be devoted to prayer and be alert and thankful. And so it's interesting to see... This little bit that he boils, he says, this all boils down to where the rubber hits the road. You know, how are you in your family? <laughs> you know, how, how, what sort of husband are you? What sort of father are you? What sort of wife are you? What sort of mother are you? That, that's what it, what sort of employee are you? What, what sort of boss are you? That, that's what it all boils down to and being devoted to prayer, being people of prayer. You know, keep our channels open to the Lord all the time devoted to prayer that's strong that that that's strong and uh, you know sort of like obviously when we talk about being devoted to our wives devoted to our children devoted to this that that all might but devoted to prayer goodness that that that's not so easy is it but that's important that's important we need to make sure that uh, you know we are you know devoted to prayer and he says be alert and be thankful Alert? Well, I mean, all manner of reasons, be alert. I mean, elsewhere, Peter says, you know, be alert for, for Satan's prowling around looking whom he may devour. 
And you know, that alertness is all the time guarding our minds and our hearts with the truth of the Word of God. As King David said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And you know, and, and obviously the, the armour of God, you know, we saw this when we did Ephesians, the armour of God in its entirety is defensive. There is no offensive spiritual warfare in the New Testament for Christians. It is defensive, all right. And you know, even even the sword of the spirit is a bad translation. It's dagger. It's not a sword. It's a dagger, and it was that that little dagger. So that if 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 there's spear, and if they ever ended up in hand-to-hand -hand combat, they had a dagger to stab someone with. It was a defensive weapon. But of course, the big emphasis is on truth all the time. You know, because Satan he comes with his wiles, with his deceptions, and so we need to to be alert and obviously to be thankful all the time. I mean, how can we crumb? We are not going to go to the lake of fire. I mean, you know, if, if, if the Lord did nothing else for us, you know, I mean, if, if he made the remainder of our days on earth or live in hell, but then let us into heaven and not the lake of fire, we ought to be thankful. Do you see that? And, and you know, in Philippians, Paul says, you know, that this, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He says, Give thanks in, in, in all things. And, um, and then Paul asked them to be praying for him in his ministry it's uh, you know it's a bit of a cliche but i mean well, one of the greatest things you can do for so is be praying for them you know i mean i don't mean praying for them instead of meeting their needs that would be hypocrisy but but prayer is is important and paul says look please pray for me he says as i proclaim the mystery of christ there's another little bash on the gnosticism there all right you know so obviously this is the mystery that that has been revealed and, uh, and he says to them, look, be, you know, now he's thinking evangelistically. He says, look, be wise how you act towards people, you know, and make the most of every opportunity. And uh, he says, let, let your conversation be full of grace and seasoned with salt. How about salt? That, it, salt, it, it gives taste, nice taste and purifies. You know, so in our relationships with unbelievers you know he's not saying you have to collar people and proactively preach the gospel so then that's for evangelists and for apostles but what he's saying here is that that know how to answer them because if we really are different then those with whom we have a long-term relationship they will ask us eventually and when they ask us, then we can tell them about the Lord. And that's what Peter says, didn't he? You know, in his uh, epistle, you know, he said, "Be, you know, be ready to give a defence for those who who ask you about the hope that is 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 in you." So he just ends there with a, you know, be ready at any time. If the Lord gives you an evangelistic opportunity, doesn't mean you've got to be proactive, but if He lands it on the plate, you make sure that you're ready to take that op opportunity. And then uh, from verses 7 to 18, he just uh, summing up and loads and loads of greetings in Paul's letters. That's important because he knew people. He was a man of relationships. It wasn't about, wasn't just about leadership and organisation. It boiled down to relationships that he he had with people. <coughs> and um, you know, he he talks about Tychicus, uh, who we saw him in the Ephesians, and Onesimus. We'll be back to him in a. Philemon, and he, he says, I'm, I'm dispatching these guys to you. They're going to come to you in Colossae, and they're going to give you all our latest news. Uh, Paphras has given us all yours, and now 
going to send them and they're going to give you all, all our news. And he says, Aristarchus sends greetings. He was a prisoner with Paul as well. We saw him in Acts, Aristarchus. Um, and he says, Mark sends um, his greetings as well. Mark was the cousin of Barnabas and uh, he was the gospel writer, wrote the gospel of Mark. Now remember, in, in, in Paul's earlier days, he and Barnabas had a big falling out over Mark, John Mark, and uh, you know, they, they actually had to stop ministering together. It was that bad, and uh, okay, fine, things like that happened. God bless them both. But isn't it good to see they were all, rec you know, all reconciled, they're all friends now. So even though they might not have gone back into ministry together, that there wasn't a relationship problem over these things. So Paul, Barnabas, Mark, all the best of friends, reconciled. Um, and he says, Jesus, who is called Justice, says hi. And um, <clears throat> you know, and he says, these, these are the only Jews who, who are with me. And uh, then he says, Epaphras says hi. Remember, Epaphras, he was the one who started the church in Colossian, had come and given Paul all, all the news. And, uh, and he says that, that he, he's always praying for them. And uh, in the Greek there, it's wrestling in prayer. And uh, that doesn't come out in the English. And, and he says that his prayer for you is that you'll stand firm and be mature. That mature there being the technical word that the, um, uh, the, the Gnostics used. Uh, you know, Gnostic, the word Gnosis, means knowledge. Of course, what Paul's saying is we have the true knowledge, not them. And the true knowledge is Jesus. And uh, he says, Luke the doctor sends greetings. Obviously, that's Luke who wrote Gospel and Acts. And he says, and Demas. Demas says, hi. Now, sadly, we'll see Demas again when we get to 2 Timothy. Not a, not a sad, uh, well, a, a sad en ending for, for Demas. And, uh, and then Paul also sends greetings to the neighbouring Laodicean church. They were only 11 miles away. So he said, next time you go see them, say hi. And he said, especially to Nympha whose house that church meets in. Again, every time specific, every time a church is located in the New Testament without failing someone's house. It's as simple as that. And then he said, look, this, this, this letter, read it to the Laodicean church after the Colossians have had it read to them. So he says, make sure that you, you know, next time you go to Laodicea, let them read it. <coughs> and, um, and he says, and get hold of the letter the Laodiceans have got. Now, that letter that the Laodiceans have got, it could be Ephesians, our Ephesians, or it could be a letter that Paul wrote to the Laodiceans that we don't have. There were certainly letters written by the apostles, including Paul, that are not in the canon of Scripture. Uh, you know, that, I mean, you know, presumably just because they didn't have anything new in them or, or whatever. So he says, anyway, you, you get hold of that. And then Paul, Paul just sends a, a personal message to a guy called Archippus. We'll see him again in Philemon to finish his work for the Lord, uh, whatever, whatever that was. And then his final greetings, he says, remember my chains. Um, it's kind of salutary. He, he was indeed in, in chains. And then he just ends by saying, grace be with you. So it begins with grace and it ends with grace and it's grace in the middle because it's all of grace. It's all undeserved kindness. It's all simply the fact that God has set his love upon us and everything that we couldn't do for ourselves, he's done for us. And uh, everything that we deserve, he doesn't give us. And everything we don't deserve, he does. So grace be with you. Okay, right, we'll call that a day on Colossians.